Chapter Twelve of the Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: The End. When I recovered consciousness, I found a stranger dressed in uniform kneeling beside me. What was more singular still, I was not under the wagon as before was lying surrounded by a dozen or so of my comrades in the veranda of my own house agnes was kneeling beside me and her father was holding a basin of water at my feet there is nothing at all to be alarmed about my dear young lady the man in uniform was saying as he felt my pulse your friend here will live to fight another day or another hundred days for that matter by this time tomorrow he will be as well as ever then turning to me he asked how do you feel now I replied that I felt much stronger, and looking up at Mr. Maybourne, inquired if we had beaten off the enemy. They have been utterly routed, replied the gentleman I addressed. The credit, however, is due to Captain Haviland and his men. But for their timely arrival, I fear we should have been done for. Flesh and blood could not have stood the strain another half an hour. Stuff and nonsense, said the doctor. For such, I afterwards discovered, he was all the credit is due to yourselves and by george you deserve it a finer stand was never made in this country or for that matter in any other after a few minutes rest and another sip of brandy i managed to get to my feet it was a sad sight i had before me stretched out in rows beyond the veranda rails were the bodies of the gallant fellows who had been killed twelve in number on rough beds placed in the veranda itself and also in the house were the wounded while on the plain all around beyond the lager might have been seen the bodies of the matabili dead on the left of the house the regiment of mounted infantry who had so opportunely come to our assistance were unsaddling after chasing the enemy and preparing to camp after i had a few moments conversation with the doctor mr maybourne and agnes came up to me again and congratulated me on having saved the stranger's life the praise they gave me was altogether undeserved for as i have already explained i had done the thing on the spur of the moment without for an instant considering the danger to which i had exposed myself when they had finished i inquired where the man was and in reply they led me into the house the doctor says it is quite a hopeless case said agnes turning to me in the doorway the poor fellow must have injured his spine when his horse fell with him I followed her into the room which had once been my own sleeping apartment. It was now filled with wounded. The man I had brought lay upon a mattress in the corner by the window, and then with Agnes beside me I went across to him. Once there I looked down at his face, and then with a cry that even on pain of death I could not have kept back, I fell against the wall, as Agnes afterwards told me, pallid to the very lips. I don't know how to tell you who I saw there, I don't know how to make you believe it or how to enable you to appreciate my feelings. One thing was certain, lying on the bed before me, his head bandaged up and a bushy beard clothing the lower half of his face, was no less a person than Richard Bartrand, my old enemy and the man I believed myself to have murdered in London so many months before. I could hardly believe my eyes. I stared at him, then looked away only to look back again half expecting to find him gone could this be any mistake i asked myself could it be only a deceiving likeness or an hallucination 
or an overtaxed brain hardly knowing what i did i dragged agnes by the wrist out of the house to a quiet corner where i leant against the wall feeling as if i were going to faint again what is the matter gilbert she cried or what is the matter with you matter i almost shouted in my joy this is the matter i am free 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 to marry you free to do as i please and to live as i please to go where i please for there in that bed is my old enemy the man i told you i had killed for a second she must have thought me mad for i noticed she shrank a step away from me and looked at me with an apprehensive glance but she soon recovered her composure and asked if i was certain of what i said i'm as certain as i am that you're standing before me now i answered i should know him anywhere where is the doctor a moment later i had found the doctor doctor i said there is a man in that room yonder who i am told you say has a broken back he is unconscious will he remain so until he dies most probably was the other's matter-of-fact reply as he began to bind up the arm of the man he had been operating on why do you ask because it is a matter of the most vital importance i should speak with him before he dies all the happiness of my life and another's depends upon it very well don't worry yourself i'll see what i can do for you now go away and be quiet i am busy i went away as he ordered me and leant against the veranda rails at the back of the house my head was swimming i could hardly think coherently now that bartrand was alive every obstacle was cleared away i was free to marry agnes as soon as her father would let me free to do whatever i pleased in the world the reaction was almost more than i could bear no words could overestimate my relief and joy half an hour later the doctor came to me your man is conscious now he said but you'd better look sharp if you want to ask him anything he won't last long i followed him into the house to the corner where the sick man lay as soon as he saw me Bartram showed with his eyes that he recognised me. Pennethorne, he whispered as I knelt by the bed, this is a strange meeting. Do you know I've been hunting for you these nine months past? Hunting for me, I said. Why, well, I thought you dead. I allowed it to be supposed that I was, he answered. I can tell you, Pennethorne, that money I swindled you out of never brought me an ounce of luck. Nor Gibbs either. He turned cocktail and sent his share back to me almost at once. He was drinking himself to death on it, I heard. Now look at me, I'm here, dying in South Africa. They tell me you saved me today at the risk of your life. Never mind that now, I said. We've got other things to talk about. But I must mind, he answered. Listen to what I have to tell you. Don't interrupt me. Three nights before I disappeared last winter, I made my will, leaving you everything. It's more than the value of the mine, for I bought off some big speculations with the money and almost doubled my capital you may not believe it but i always felt sorry for you even when i stole your secret i'm a pretty bad lot but i couldn't steal your money and not be a bit sorry but funny as it may seem to say so i hated you all the time too hated you more than any other man on god's earth now you've risked your life for me and i'm dying in your house ah, how strangely things turn out don't they here the doctor gave him something to drink and bade me let him be quiet for a few moments presently bartrand recovered his strength and began again one day soon after i arrived in london from australia i fell in tow with a man named nicola i tell you pennethorne if ever you see that man beware for he is the devil and nobody else 
i can tell you he proposed the most fiendish things to me and showed me such a side of human nature if i hadn't quarrelled with him and not seen so much of him i should have been driven into a lunatic asylum i can tell you it's not altogether a life of roses to be a millionaire about this time i began to get threatening letters from men all over europe trying to extort money from me for one purpose or another eventually nikola found out that i was the victim of a secret society how he managed it the deuce only knows they wanted money badly and finally nikola told me that for half a million he could get me clear if i did not pay up i'd be dead he said in a month but i wasn't going to be frightened like that so i told him i wouldn't give it from that time forward attempts were made on my life until my nerve gave way and in a blue funk i determined to forego the bulk of my wealth and clear out of england in the hopes of beginning a new life elsewhere he paused once more for a few moments his strength was nearly exhausted and i could see with half an eye that the end was not far distant now when he spoke again his voice was much weaker and he seemed to find it difficult to concentrate his ideas nikola wanted sixty thousand for himself i suppose for one of his devilments he said huskily he used every means in his power to induce me to give it to him but i refused time after time he showed me his power tried to hypnotize me even and finally told me i should be a dead man in a week if i did not let him have the money i wasn't going to be bluffed so i declined again by this time i distrusted my servants my friends and everybody with whom i came in contact i could not sleep and i could not eat all my arrangements were made and i was going to leave england on the saturday on a wednesday nikola and i were to meet at the house on a special business we saw each other at a club and i called a hansom intending to go on and wait for him i had a dreadful cold and carried some cough drops in a little silver box in my pocket he must have got possession of it and substituted some preparations of his own feeling my cough returning i took one in the cab as i drove along after that i remember no more till i came round and found myself lying in the middle of the road half covered with snow and with the bruise the size of a teacup on the back of my head for some reason of his own nikola had tried to do for me and the cabman frightened at my state had pitched me out and left me as soon as i could walk and it was daylight i determined to find you at your hotel in order to hand over to you the money i'd stolen from you and then i was going to bolt for england for my life when i reached blankerton's i was told that you had left i traced your luggage to aberdeen but though i wasted a week looking i couldn't find you there three months ago i chanced upon a snapshot photograph taken in cape town and reproduced in an american illustrated paper it represented one of the only two survivors of the fiji princess and i recognized you immediately and followed you first to cape town and then bit by bit out here now listen to me i've not much time left my will is in my coat pocket when i am dead you can take it out and do as you like with it you'll find yourself one of the richest men in the world or i'm mistaken i can only say i hope you'll have better luck with the money than i have had i'm glad you've got it again for somehow i'd fixed the idea in my head that i shouldn't rest quietly in my grave unless i restored it to you one caution don't let nikola get hold of it that's all for he's after you i'm certain he's been tracking you down these months past and i've heard he's on his way here 
I'm told he thinks I'm dead. He'll be very right in his conjecture soon. Bartrand, I said, as solemnly as I knew how, I will not take one halfpenny of the money. I am firmly resolved upon that. Nothing shall ever make me. Not take it, but it's your own. I never had any right to it from the beginning. I stole your secret while you were ill. That may be, but I'll not touch the money, come what may. But I must leave it to somebody, and leave it to the London hospitals. I will not have a penny of it. Good heavens, man, you little know how basely I behaved towards you. I've not time to hear it now, then, he answered. Quick, let me make a new will while I've strength to sign it. Pen's paper and ink were soon forthcoming, and at his instruction to Mr. Maybourne and the doctor between them, drafted the will. When it was finished, the dying man signed it, and then those present witnessed it, and the man lay back and closed his eyes. For a moment I thought he was gone, but I was mistaken. After a silence of about ten minutes, he opened his eyes and looked at me. Do you remember Marco Purley? he said. That was all. Then, with a grim smile upon his lips, he died, just as the clock on the wall above his head struck twelve. His last speech, for some reason or other, haunted me for weeks. Towards sundown that afternoon, I was standing in the veranda of my house, watching a fatigue party digging a grave under a tree in the paddock beyond the mine building, when a shout from Mr. Maybourne, who was on his way to the office, attracted my attention. When I reached his side, he pointed to a small speck of dust about a mile to the northward. It's a horseman, he cried. Who can it be? I have no possible notion, I answered, but we shall very soon see. The rider, whoever he was, was in no hurry. When he came nearer, we could see that he was cantering along, as coolly as if he were riding in Rotten Row. By the time he was only a hundred yards or so distant, I was trembling with excitement. Though I had never seen the man on horseback before, I should have known his figure anywhere. It was Dr. Nicola. There could be no possible doubt about that. Bartrand was quite right when he told me that he was in the neighbourhood. I heard Mr. Maybourne say something about news from the township, but the real import of his words I did not catch. I seemed to be watching the advancing figure with my whole being. When he reached the lager, he sprang from his horse. It was then I noticed Mr. Maybourne had left my side and was giving instructions to let him in. I followed to receive him. On reaching the inside of our defences, Nicola raised his hat politely to Mr. Maybourne while he handed his reins to a trooper standing by. Mr. Maybourne, I believe, he said. My name is Nicola. I'm afraid I'm thrusting myself upon you in a very unseemly fashion, and at a time when you have no desire to be burdened with outsiders. My friendship for our friend Rexford here must be my excuse. I left Bulawayo at daylight this morning in order to see him. He held out his hand to me, and I found myself unable to do anything but take it. As usual, it was as cold as ice. For a moment, I was so fascinated by the evil glitter in his eyes that I forgot to wonder how he knew my assumed name. However, I managed to stammer out something by the way of a welcome, and asked how long he had been in South Africa. I arrived two months ago, he answered, and after a week in Cape Town, where I have some business to transact, made my way up here to see you. It appears I've arrived at an awkward moment. If I can help you in any way, I hope you will command my services. 
I'm a tolerable surgeon, and I have the advantage of considerable experience of assegai wounds. While he was speaking, the bell rang for tea, and at Mr. Maybourne's invitation, Dr. Nicola accompanied us to where the meal was spread, picnic fashion, on the ground by the kitchen door. Agnes was waiting for us, and I saw her start with surprise when her father introduced the newcomer as Dr. Nicola, a friend of Mr. Rexford's. She bowed gravely to him, but said nothing. I could see that she knew him for the man Bartrand had warned me against, and for this reason she was by no means prepossessed in his favour. During the meal, Nicola exerted all his talents to please, and such was his devilish, I could only call it by that name, cleverness, that by the time he rose from the meal, he had put himself on the best of terms with everyone. Even Agnes seemed to have, for the moment, lost much of her distrust of him. Once out in the open again, I drew Nicola away from the others, having walked him out of earshot of the house, asked the meaning of his visit. Is it so hard to guess, he said, as he seated himself on the pole of a wagon and favoured me with one of his peculiar smiles? I should have thought not. I have not tried to guess, I answered, having by this time resolved upon my line of action. And I do not intend to do so. I wish you to tell me. My dear Pennethorne Rexford, or Rexford Pennethorne, he said quietly, I should advise you not to adopt that tone with me. You know very well why I have put myself into the trouble of running you to the earth. I have not the least notion, I replied, and that is the truth. I thought I'd done with you when I said goodbye to you in Golden Square that awful night. Nobody can hope to have done with me, he answered, and they do not act fairly by me. Act fairly by you? What do you mean? How have I not acted fairly by you? By running away in that mysterious fashion when it was agreed between us that I should arrange everything, you might have ruined me. Still, I do not understand you. How might I have ruined you? This time I took him unawares. He looked at me for a moment in sheer surprise. I should advise you to give up this sort of thing, he said, licking his lips in that peculiar cat-like fashion I had noticed in London. Remember I know everything, and one word in our friend Maybourne's ear. Well, you know what the result will be. Perhaps he does not know what an illustrious criminal he is proposing to take for a son-in-law. One insinuation like that again, Nicker, I cried, and I'll have you put off this place before you know where you are. You dare call me a criminal, you who plotted and planned the murders that shocked and terrified all England? That I do not admit. I only remember that I assisted you to obtain your revenge on a man who had wronged you. And summing up so judiciously, do not forget that point. Nicola evidently thought he had obtained an advantage and was in quick to prove on this. Come, come, he said, what's the use of our quarrying like a pair of children? All I want is your answer to two simple questions. What are your questions? I want to know first what you did with Bartrand's body when you got rid of it out of the cab. You really wish to know that? He nodded. Then come with me, I said, and I'll tell you. I led him into the house, and having reached the bed in the corner, pulled down the sheet. He bent over the figure lying there so still, and started back with a cry of surprise. For a moment I could see that he was nonplussed, as he had probably not been in his life before. But by the time one could have counted twenty, this singular being was himself again. I congratulate you, he said, turning to me and holding out his hand. The king has come into his own again. You are now one of the richest men in the world, and I can ask my second question. 
be certain first i said i inherit nothing from mr bartrand what do you mean by that i happen to know that his will was made in your favour you're quite mistaken he made a later will this afternoon leaving all his money in the states to four london hospitals nicola's face went paler than i had ever seen it yet his thin lips trembled perceptibly the man was visibly anxious you will excuse me appearing to doubt you i hope he said but may i see that will i called mr maybourne into the room and asked him if he had any objection to allowing dr nicola to see the paper in question he handed it to him without hesitation keeping close to his elbow while he perused it the doctor read it slowly from beginning to end examined the signature noted the names of the executors and also of the witnesses and when he had done so returned it to mr maybourne with a bow thank you he said politely it is excellently drawn up and with your evidence against me i fear it would be foolish for me to dispute it in that case i don't think i need trouble your hospitality any further then turning to me he led me from the house across to where his horse was standing good-bye pennethorne he said all i can say of you is that your luck is greater than your cleverness i am not so blasé but i can admire a man who can surrender three millions without a sigh i must confess i am vulgar enough to find that it cost me a pang to lose even my sixty thousand i wanted it badly had my coup only come off and the dead man in the air not such an inveterate ass i should have had the whole amount of his fortune in my hands by this time and in six months i would have worked out a scheme that would have paralysed europe as it is i must look elsewhere for the amount when you wish to be proud of yourself try to remember that you have bought dr nicola in one of his best planned schemes and save probably half a million lives by doing so believe me there are far cleverer men than you who have tried to outwit me and failed i suppose you will marry miss maybourne now well i wish you luck with her if i'm a judge of character she will make you an able wife in ten years time you will become a commonplace rich man scarcely any idea outside your own domestic circle while i the devil himself knows where or what i shall be then i wonder which will be the happier now i must be off though you may not think it i always liked you and if you'd thrown a new lot with me i might have made something of you good-bye he held out his hand and as he did so looked at me full in the face for the last time i felt the influence of those extraordinary eyes i took the hand he offered and bade him good-bye with almost a feeling of regret mad as it may seem to say so at the thought that in all probability i should never see him again next moment he was on his horse's back and out on the veldt making for the westward i stood and watched him till he was lost in the gathering gloom and i went slowly back to the house thinking of the change that had come into my life thanking god for my freedom three months have passed since the events just narrated took place and i am back in cape town again finishing the writing of this story of the most adventurous period of my life in mr maybourne's study tomorrow my wife for i've been married a week today and i leave south africa on a trip round the world what a honeymoon it will be the pride of the south you will be glad to hear has made gallant strides since the late trouble in rhodesia and as my shares have quadrupled in value to say nothing of the other ventures in which i have been associated with my father-in-law i am making rapid progress towards becoming a rich man now it only remains for me to bring my story to a close 
by the way of an epilogue let me say that no better sweeter or more loyal wife than i possess could possibly be desired by any mortal man i love her with my whole heart and soul as she loves me and i can only hope that every masculine reader who may have the patience to wade through these to me interminable pages may prove as fortunate in his choice as i have been more fortunate it is certain he could not be end of chapter twelve end of lust of hate by guy newell boothby narrator peter keeble nottingham united kingdom